Now, can we turn to the Word of God, please, for a Bible reading in the Gospel this evening? The Gospel by Luke and chapter number 3. Gospel of Luke and chapter number 3. I'm going to start at verse number 3, and then I'll move down to verse number 7. The in-between verses are quotations from the... Um, book of Isaiah. I almost said the gospel of Isaiah. That would have been quite appropriate because Isaiah is known as the gospel prophet, the gospel preacher of the Old Testament. Verse number three of chapter three, and it's Luke's gospel. And John the Baptist came into all the country about Jordan preaching Uh, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham uh, to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth a good fruit is, uh, sorry, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, uh, What shall we do then? And John the Baptist answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, Let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came the publicans, or the tax collectors, to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, I noted this just before I uh, came out to the service, Um, the people were in expectation. They were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting a revelation. They were expecting God to come on the scene. And the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. And they were in expectation of that. And I did allude earlier on, there's a sense of expectation in this church and in this community at this time. And that's a good sign. And all men mused in their hearts of John whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them, uh, on the, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in his hand, 
and he will truly or thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And many other things in his exhortation, John the Baptist preached unto the people. Just a short prayer. Gracious Father, we stand in your presence. Of that we are very, very conscious. Indeed, Lord, we're very conscious that we are totally powerless, totally incapable of bringing a message, the Word of God, indeed, to the people this evening without divine help. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would stand at my side, stand behind me, stand in front of me, and Lord, put your Word into my heart and into my mind and into my mouth. I pray for divine quickening of both mouth and memory and mind, so that the Word of God will flow from the heart of God into the hearts and minds of the people. Lord, even above and beyond the human voice, I pray that there will be a divine voice saying things to individuals in this house that the preacher has not said. When you are in a meeting, that is indeed a common occurrence. And I pray that in your own inimitable way, speak tonight. If you had your way in this meeting uh, this evening, awesome and wonderful things would happen. And we've been hearing indeed about some of those things in recent days. Have your way, Lord, in this meeting, in the hearts of young people, middle-aged, and older. Have your way, Lord, in the hearts of those uh, who perhaps may not have been in a meeting like this before, or not maybe often in the recent past. And I pray, Lord, that we will be very, very uh, conscious that God is indeed walking up and down the aisle and putting His hand on our shoulder here and there in the pew. And when that happens, we'll know that it's God. So speak in the stillness while we wait on these, and hush all of our hearts to listen in expectancy. We want to be still and to know that God is here, and He's here to do a work, a deep work in our hearts and in our lives. And when that happens, we'll never, 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 never be the same again. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. Bind every demonic spirit, and may the angels of God continue to encircle, and may the Holy Spirit hover over us. I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. <clears throat> We've read about the greatest, at least one of the greatest preachers of all time, and I refer to John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. He was the kind of W.P. Nicholson of the New Testament. In fact, he stood between the Old and the New Testament. He was a very rugged preacher. 
he dressed in a very unusual way, and indeed he spoke a very unusual message, the like of which people had not heard in a long time. Interestingly, for 400 years, that's a long time, there was no prophet, and probably there was very little preaching. So John stepped out of eternity, he stepped out of the pages of history, this W.P. Nicholson of the New Testament, or between the Testaments, and he began to shake the very foundations and the very fabric of the nation of Israel, particularly Judah in the south at that particular time. And not hundreds, but thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, came to hear him preach. He pulled no punches. He had a message to deliver, and that is what he was determined to do. He probably had a very strong voice, and he actually was very learned, and he was very capable doing the work of God. He had one great mission and one great purpose in uh, being on the earth at that particular time, and it was simply this. He was preparing the way for Jesus Christ. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. In fact, his ministry was so dynamic and so unusual, and people were so moved and impacted by him, they thought, many thought, he was the Messiah. That's why I mentioned that the people were in expectation. They were excited. Is this him? Could this be the one that the world has been waiting for for 4,000 years? Well, he was not the Messiah, but he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one sent to prepare the way. As Isaiah said, making the rough places smooth, the crooked places straight, making the mountains and the hills lower, causing the valleys to be exalted so that there would be a way for the Messiah to do his work and to uh, get the message that he had come to share out to the people. I say he was the W.P. Nicholson of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may not have heard him. Uh, there might be one or two in the meeting who did, but the majority haven't, but you've read about him and heard about him. He was very unusual. <clears throat> he said things that people were afraid to say in church. One time he came to church and um, came to actually a meeting house in Banbridge, the Temperance Hall, uh, to, to, to preach. He, he was doing a mission. And when he came into the vestibule or the, the entrance hall, the people said, uh, Reverend Nicholson, <clears throat> uh, the local member of parliament is in the house tonight. Please, please uh, be careful about what you say. Just tonight, just tonight, please be uh, a little bit more measured than you normally are. Well, they said that to the wrong man. Uh, he made no promises. He just pushed on into the church and he went through then the next set of doors into the church. And he looked up 
to the front, and guess what? He saw the local member of parliament, who was renowned as an alcoholic and a very ungodly, worldly man, sitting in the pulpit, if you please. <laughs> Being the local member of parliament, he felt he was entitled to do that. So the people would see their member of parliament was supporting uh, the meeting. He took a few steps up the aisle, and he stopped. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, You old, blue-nosed, drunken wart! Get out of that pulpit! Because I am not going to enter it until you're out of it. And if you don't get out of it, I'll put you out of it. Imagine saying that to an MP. <laughs> he was not afraid of anybody. And the MP had to get out of the pulpit and make room for the servant of God. He was not afraid of people. And during the course of his ministry, WP led tens of thousands to Jesus Christ, if not hundreds of thousands, preaching alongside D.L. Moody and many other great preachers. And when John the baptizer preached, he was not in the business of trying to make friends. He did not bring all the clergy and the rabbis and the lawyers, scribes, up to the front, give them the best seats. In fact, they, 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 they came up to the front themselves. And when he saw them in his meeting, he uh, stepped down to them and in front of them, and he says, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You are a, a den of snakes or vipers. He said, Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. That's how he talked to them. He called a spade a spade, and he preached in a very direct manner to the people. And they trembled. They, they feared him. And there were three major doctrines that he touched upon quite regularly. And I'm going to dwell upon um, perhaps um, one thought, one issue, uh, during the course of this meeting. The central message um, of his teaching and his ministry was repentance. In actual fact, the title of my message tonight is Theology That the Devil Hates. You got that? Theology That the Devil Hates. The word theology has to do with the Christian doctrine of Jesus Christ. Theology, the doctrine of God. And uh, there's some theology the devil loves, and um, it's probably occupying the, the majority uh, uh, position in, in the ministry of many, many preachers and ministers and pastors, because they're saying things to keep the people happy, to keep them coming to church, to keep them giving to the church, and to keep the church uh, going, as they might say, keep it functioning. Well, certainly, um, John uh, the Baptist, he wasn't interested in those things. He was passionate about preaching the truth. And I am saying that theology that the devil hates has everything to do with preaching repentance. Rugged, dynamic Bible repentance. No, that's not my theme tonight. And uh, repentance has to do with changing your life, and your direction, and your attitude. And very, very, very few pastors and preachers preach repentance. If you come to this church regularly, 
you will hear that word very often and that doctrine preached uh, unequivocally and uncompromisingly because you've got a faithful preacher and pastor here. But many churches you would maybe attend for a whole year, maybe even several years, and never hear that word mentioned. And I say to you tonight, this word, this experience, it is so important that you will never, never, never get to heaven without repenting. Because it means forsaking your sins, turning away from your sins to God. That's the long and the short of it. Jesus said, except you repent, you'll perish. And the old preachers used to say, either you turn or you burn. He also preached, he didn't use the terminology, but he preached and taught the new birth. He said it's not enough to be baptized in water as an outward sign that you're changing direction in your life. He says you need to change. Your lifestyle needs to change. You need to be converted, and that's a Bible word. You need to change your behavior. You need to be so touched by the power of God that your mindset changes, your language changes, your direction changes, your company changes. Your whole life is turned right side up because it's upside down at the moment. A new birth, that is a central, very straightforward, powerful Bible message. That's the heart of the gospel. Conversion, a life transformed by the power of God. I remember as a very much younger man, indeed a teenager, uh, living a very harem-scarum life, very daring in sin, very wild, untamable and untrainable, a compulsive liar, a compulsive thief, a compulsive blasphemer, although I was just into my teens, I could have sworn, I say, and blasphemed like a sailor, a drunken sailor at that. I was really uh, a pain to my parents and to everybody who knew me. But when Jesus Christ stepped into my life, one evening in the gospel service in the village of Rosley, I have never, 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 never been the same. I was like a dead man walking out of a tomb. I was completely changed from the inside out. My language changed immediately. My habits changed immediately. Did I say I was a thief? Yes. And God spoke to me and told me I had to make reparations. I had to make restitutions and pay back all that came to my mind. It took me three years to do that, but that's proof of true conversion. When you get born again, God does not hand you down a big bunch of receipts for unpaid bills, debts, or things that you've done that need to be put right. He requires that which is past. And if you want to demonstrate to your friends and family in the world that you're changed, that you're truly born again, that's how to do it. Just, just do what God tells you to do. Straighten out what you can in your past. The blood of Jesus only covers... Uh, 
uh, our sins in our past, but what we can uncover, that we must attend to. Period. And so John preached the new birth. And um, he told the people not to be messing around, playing tricks, uh, doing, doing their own thing. He said, lay the axe to the root of the tree. Now that was plain talk. There was nobody around that didn't understand that. Lay the axe at the root. And he says, change, turn, get right. And he said, live that way. And it's interesting, men came, you, you saw them there, we read about them, and they asked him, well, what, what do I need to do? There are things you need to do. And that is what the meetings are about that Pastor Bertie has mentioned. Uh, things that accompany salvation. Uh, um, Stephen and uh, Pastor Bertie are going to uh, share with the young believers and those who are interested things that they need to know, things that they must do in order to live a successful and indeed a scriptural and a victorious Christian life. The matter that John the baptizer mentioned that I want to dwell upon tonight. It's mentioned three times in this passage that we read this evening. And it's part of what I'm calling the theology that the devil hates. He mentions hell that is seldom, seldom mentioned even in the best evangelical churches in the land, only once in a while. You see, they don't want to scare the people away, so they say, or think. It's unspoken. He talks about a place of unquenchable fire. So I want to talk about that for a while. And I also want to mention the fire of God's judgment. Mention is specifically made here about the wrath of God, the wrath to come. It's in front of us. And um, there's an implication there with fire because it's the judgment of God. So there is the place called hell. I will leave with that first. Then the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And then in the third place, he mentions the fire of the Holy Ghost. And I want to share with you the difference that the Holy Ghost makes in a believer's life when they surrender uh, to his power and his indwelling and his uh, dynamic in our day-to-day -day living. And I want to say once more, the devil doesn't like this kind of talk. And sadly, there's a lot of preachers um, who claim to be evangelical, but they, um, they steer a wide berth from mentioning any, any of these things, and that is so terribly, terribly sad. <clears throat> Pulpits are silent, truth is neglected, and when that happens, God will hold us accountable. 
these meetings are being recorded in heaven. And there's coming a day when I will stand, I, as a humble servant of God, will stand in the presence of God, and every sermon I ever preached will be on record. My faithfulness, or the lack of it, will be on record. It's being recorded, lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me. I believe that word books that is mentioned in the book of the Revelation, well, it's specifically mentioned in relation to the great white throne judgment, which is the uh, judgment of the ungodly, but uh, I believe that there is a record of all of our lives as believers, our walk with God, our Christian lives and service. It's all being taken note of. Don't think that you can get through this life quietly, sitting on the back seat, not pulling your weight, professing to be a Christian, seldom coming to the prayer meeting or never coming, or as a Christian parent, never opening the Scriptures to pray with your family and to read the Scriptures to them, or in business, not doing things straight above board, instead in a behind-back behind manner, an underhand way. Everything is in the book, and we will have to face the music one day, uh, quite frankly. Oh, yes, but I'm saying when it comes to servants of God, preachers, if we're not faithful in preaching the whole counsel of God, we will have to give a reason for that kind of behavior. Now, a lot of preachers don't read the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Some have never read the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And for your information, Jesus was so conversant with the book of Deuteronomy, when the devil tempted him, he answered him from Scripture and from the book of Deuteronomy each time. And if you memorize, if you read the Scripture, study it, memorize it, you'll be able to face the devil much more efficiently and victoriously when it comes to temptation. Because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So we need to know the whole counsel of God in order to preach it and teach it to the people. The fire of hell. Are you aware that Jesus preached more often about hell than he did about heaven? Wouldn't you have thought he would have dwelt more on heaven, where he came from? Such was his concern that people did not go there. He preached he preached about hell twice as much, actually, twice as much as he did about heaven. In the entire Bible, hell is mentioned 53 times, at least, and heaven is referred to specifically 
at least 24 times. So you see the emphasis. Hell is a dangerous place. You need to know about it. You need to keep a wide berth from going there. That's not a place that you want to end up in. <clears throat> there was a, a padre in the army uh, who was um, quite a jovial character, and uh, he was hail fellow well met with the troops, and uh, amongst the troops there was a Christian one day that um, attended one of his meetings, and he said, Padre, do you believe in hell? He says, no, I do not believe in hell. And the gentleman that challenged him, he said, Sir, can I inform you that you are a fraud and you are taking a wage under false pretenses? Now, he wasn't mincing his words. He says, uh, you, don't, you're not pre you don't preach or believe in hell. And he said, you must not believe the Bible. You do not believe the Bible. Otherwise, you would preach about hell. So the man had to agree and say, well, that's, that's the case. And he says, number two, he said, uh, you are deceiving the people. You don't believe the Bible, you are deceiving the people, not warning them of the dangers of being lost in a place of fire and flame, a place that is indescribably terrible. And he was a bit shattered and shocked. He says, you would need to resign from your position. You're not fit to be a padre. You're taking a wage under false pretenses. You know, my dear friends, the majority of pastors, ministers, bishops, priests, don't believe in the literal hell of, what script, of which Scripture talks so much. And I'm here tonight to remind you that hell is a real, a very real place. We are in or near to the town of Dungannon or to the village of Moy. Moy is a real place, and Dungannon's a real place, and so is Ben Burb. Real place. And where I come from, Banbridge, if you've never been there, it exists. I've just come from there tonight. I've been there. I know what, where I live there, clearly. It's a real place. And Hell is a real place. And for your information, if you can believe this, um, there is every evidence. You know when a person who's wicked dies, we're told that they go down. They go down, not just down into the grave, the body. They go down into hell. Down. So there is every evidence that hell is at the center of the earth. Now, the geographical location of hell is not really very important. You don't want to go there. But I tell you, if, it, if, if it's at the center of the earth, as many maintain, it's very, very, very hot there. Very hot. The temperature, actually, if you try to gauge it, it's off the Richter scale. But the, remember, the body does not go to hell. It's the spirit. And the torment and the pain 
of fire and flame in that place of unquenchable heat is beyond words. Speaking about heaven, the Scripture says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Do you love Jesus? My Jesus? We could say and we could incorporate this place of which I am now speaking and say, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that hate him. Do you love Jesus or do you hate him? If you hate Jesus, I'm saying, there's a terrible place up in front of you. And you need to escape it. And you can. You can. There's a way back to God from the dark path of sin. There's a door that is open. And you and all may go in at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Unquenchable fire, outer darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's not exaggerated adjectives describing that place. I want you to know that it's barely adequate to describe that terrible, terrible place. It has been described, and rightly so, as the pandemonium of lost souls, or the madhouse of the universe. Imagine spending all eternity in the madhouse of lost souls. It is desperately, desperately uh, serious. God never intended any person to go to hell because he tells us in his word that hell was prepared for the devil and the devil's angels. But if you continue serving the devil, you may uh, be a respectable person. You may even be God-fearing. You may go to church and maybe even be a member of a church, but you're not born again. But I am saying that is the place uh, where you are going to if you don't repent of your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, which I trust indeed you will think very deeply and seriously about this evening. God never intended anybody to go there, but we live for the devil or like the devil. If we live in a life of sin and ungodliness, that is going to be our address. That is where we are going to. As sure as you know your name and as you know your home address, that is where you're going to end up. You can be a hundred percent sure. But thank God you're in the gospel meeting tonight and you're being warned not to go there. There was a famous uh, agnostic and um, a skeptical individual called um, Huxley. Was it Charles Huxley? He spent his life in opposing Christianity and the gospel, wrote books against it. Um, he was something of a philosopher, 
and they took a terrible public and scurrilous stand against Christians and Christianity. And he never trusted the Lord. He died uh, in, in due course. But on his deathbed, uh, he'd been unconscious for some time. But then before he died, he opened his eyes. Just moments, not minutes, moments before he passed away. I think he sat up and he opened his eyes. And he said, and so it's, it's all true. It's all true. All those things I have opposed, all those things I've condemned and attacked, wrote books about, he says, and so it's all true. The Bible, the story about Jesus and the cross and the shed, it's all true. And he just fell back in the bed on the pillow, and he was in that place that he had spent all his life denying. Oh, men and women. I remember some... Uh, years ago when I was pastoring in Banbridge, I pastored there for 18 years, um, and uh, I was visiting a home not far from the church, and I discovered it was um, uh, a family of Jehovah Witnesses lived there, and I began to share the gospel with them. And um, for a while they listened, and I mentioned, of course, about a place of fire and flame. I knew, of course, that uh, Jehovah Witnesses do not believe in hell, but uh, the guy stood there as I talked about a lost eternity, and he threw back his shoulders like this, and he laughed, and laughed, and laughed about the mention of hell. It was so eerie, so eerie. Do you know something? You will not be in hell for five seconds until you're a very firm believer in the place. If you've been living your life like that Jehovah Witness and denying the same. Now, what is hell like? I just want to mention this briefly before I move on to my next point. Hell is a place of conscious existence. You will not go there in a, a stupor or in a a comatose, sleeping state. It's a place of conscious existence. You'll be able to look around you and see friends and neighbors, family, and you'll see a lot of ministers and priests and bishops and preachers who lived on the gospel, but they were never born again. It'll be terribly sad when you go there, if you do go there, God forbid, and you see some of your children that you brought into this world there, or your parents and close relatives, you will see and you will hear, you will hear terrible, terrible sounds. Terrible sounds. And there'll be ministers there and they'll hear somebody screaming at them, you never told me about this place. You never warned me it existed. You never told me how I could escape it. And they'll be cursing the memory and the name of that man. And it's a place of, obviously, of feeling. You know what it's like when you accidentally burn your finger in a candle? You're striking a match uh, to light a candle and, and it catches your finger. It's very, very painful. Just a tiny, 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 imagine your whole body being thrown into such a place of intense 
flame and fire. A place of feeling. It's a place of conscious existence. Understand that, please. Hell is also a place of unsatisfied appetites. The drunkard will be there and he'll be looking for his next drink, but he will look in vain. The drug addict will be there, but there'll be no drugs. There'll be those who will be looking for a scratch card or looking uh, to um, gamble some money uh, uh, and to, to hopefully make money uh, in the exercise, but there'll be no gambling. They'll be looking for their cronies. Oh yes, they'll be there, but I tell you, they'll be in such torment and distress, it'll not be possible actually to, um, uh, to enjoy their company. Quite to the contrary. Unsatisfied desire. Here's a man in Luke chapter 16, and by the way, that is not a parable, the story of Lazarus. You never find the name of an actual individual given in a parable related by the Lord Jesus. It's an actual account, factual. And that rich man whom we call Dives, who died in his sins and went to hell, we are told that not only did he see his brothers and want to warn them uh, uh, from coming to this place, he, he, he had uh, an insatiable thirst for a drink of water. And he said to Abraham, Father Abraham, please, he said, uh, uh, get, get, get some water for me. He said, so that you can put your finger in it and just, just, just a little droplet of water on my tongue and to cool my tongue because I am in, 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 in terrible fire and distress. Just a little droplet, he said, would give me a momentary relief. But that was denied him. Imagine, unsatisfied desires. It's a terrible place. Yes, it is. A place of eternal retribution, that's punishment. Eter not, not, not just for a few years. I was on a Portrush, not Portrush, but uh, I was on um, Benone Strand uh, um, near Downings the other day. I'd been visiting some friends down in Limavady, and uh, I noticed the sand there was very, very, very fine, very fine. Actually, I brought some of it home, and I meant to bring a little with me tonight to let you see how fine it was. And it's a very, very long strand. If every, every tiny, tiny pickle of sand on the Benone strand was taken one by one by one, and if each of them represented a million years, when every, every grain of sand from the Benone strand was taken, representing a, th a, million, a million years, did I say a thousand? I say that when every strand has been gathered up and taken away, you would still be in that awful place because eternity knows no end. Eternal. I say eternity. Eternity is a long time. It never becomes exhausted. Oh, please understand the serious matter of which we're trying to speak tonight. It's a place of haunting memories. There's many in hell tonight and they're thinking about the evangelical church they attended heard the gospel and did nothing about it. Maybe sometimes they were on the verge of getting saved, but they didn't. Many have memories of being brought up in a Christian home, hearing a mother or a father talking to them about Jesus, reading the Bible to them, and 
guiding their feet, trying to guide their feet in the right way, but those memories, somebody witnessing at the workplace, they heard the gospel, maybe got a gospel tract given to them, maybe even in the public house, somebody came in and gave them a gospel tract and said, please read that and think about it, but they never did. A place of haunting memories, being so close. Some um, weeks ago, um, when I dropped into a Sunday evening service, God's servant was preaching on not far from the kingdom of God. And there'll be those in hell who are not far from the kingdom of God, so, so close to getting saved, but they never took that last step. Maybe, maybe you're close, maybe you're close, but you're still outside. You're close, maybe close to the uh, gate of salvation, but if you don't enter in, you're still very much in a dangerous situation. It's a place of fixed destiny. Like the Bible says, like the tree that falls, where it fell, it lies there. I say this as I move on, please, to the next um, point, and I want those here tonight who love the Lord to think about this statement. You tell me you believe the Bible, and because you believe the Bible, you believe in the existence of hell. That's good. Well done, I say. But if you believe in hell, as you say you do, why are you not living a godly life? If you believe in hell, as you say you do, why are you not weeping for lost souls? Why are you not weeping over your family? You weep when your loved ones are taken from you. You stand at the graveside as the coffin is lowered into the ground and you weep. But why did you never weep for them if they're unconverted, why did you not weep for them when they're alive and on the earth and witness to them and share the gospel? If you believe in hell, as you say you do, why aren't you doing more? Why are you not doing more? To reach and to win the lost to Jesus Christ. There are many of us here tonight, and we have never, never stood to support the gospel, the preaching of the gospel in the open air. You've never had that experience. Why not? There are many Christians, and they come to a Sunday morning service, but they never come in the evening. And very often when there's a gospel mission on in a church, they seldom come, maybe once a week to pass themselves. But if you believe in hell as you say you do, why do you not try to get people into the gospel mission and attend the meetings yourself? If you believe in hell as you say you do, why aren't you attending the church prayer meeting? Why aren't you on your knees every day weeping and praying for the lost? There is a place of unquenchable fire. And dear unconverted friend in the meeting tonight, You need to settle with God. 
You need to repent. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You need to get born again of the Holy Spirit. You need to get into the family of God. It's late, but it's not too late. You need to do that tonight. I promise I'll be quicker on the other matters I want to mention. I've talked about the fire of hell. Now I want to talk about the fire of God's judgment. It's not a popular topic, but it's a very biblical one. Absolutely. The wrath of God was mentioned in our text here this evening uh, in the verse number 7. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And we're um, given indications, as I've mentioned already, about laying the axe to the root and so on. The fire of God's judgment. In um, the book of Amos, chapters 1 and 2, there's at least six references to God stating categorically, I will send, send fire onto the earth. Twenty years ago, uh, approximately, we um, heard the terrible news, and we all can remember where we were at that time. For me, I was going to a hospital. I think it was Antrim, Antrim Hospital, uh, to visit somebody. In fact, I think maybe it was my wife um, who was in hospital. And I saw on the television screen as I was going in the towers in New York, the planes flying into the towers, and the towers exploding, collapsing, and the flames, the terrible flashbacks. And in those terrible, that terrible holocaust, 3,000 people, including those who lost their lives in the aircraft and at the Pentagon, 3,000 people that day were ushered out into eternity in flame and fire. Now, there were many Christians amongst that number. Thank God there were many that were saved and they went to be with the Lord, but the vast, vast majority were not, were not. And that picture of the Twin Towers representing uh, uh, the capitalism of the West, there were iconic symbols of prosperity and banking and, 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 and um, you know, money markets and industries and all of that, in one hour, they didn't exist anymore. I want to say to you that there's coming a time when all the great cities like London, Amsterdam, New York, Nairobi, and Belfast, and Dublin, all the great cities like Beijing, and, 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 and Adelaide, and uh, all the cities of the United will be on fire when the judgment of God comes. Terrible spectacle. You saw the news in relation to fire on the mountain uh, at the Mourne Mountains just uh, this past couple of nights, clearly, and I understand the fires are not completely extinguished, but they said the fires could have been seen burning 20 miles away from the Mourne's. And in fact, in, within a few hours, it was being talked about on the news. 
The fires on the Mourne Mountains was being talked about in Australia. News spreads so, so quickly, especially if it's in something uh, that catches the interest uh, and the minds of the people. But uh, this, this story I want to leave with you uh, clearly um, this evening as we move on to the last point uh, relates to uh, an account, a very graphic, detailed, very disturbing, an awesome, uh, an overwhelming account in Genesis chapter 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were twin, were sister cities. In fact, there were a lot of other smaller towns. You would call them satellite towns and communities. There could have been, there could have been uh, 30 or 40, 50, maybe even more than that on the, the plains um, in, in, in the Jordan Valley and um, in, the, in, in the region of the Dead Sea. When that great holocaust occurred, I'm saying to you that it was big news. It was a big talking point. But those cities were financially, and in regard to business, they were very prosperous. They had a lot of shops and industries. <coughs> there was a lot of money being made. That's what drew Lot there. Lot the backslider. The nephew of Abraham when he chose the well-watered plains of Jordan, the Jordan Valley, he, he, he wasn't ever, ever, ever in his wildest imaginations planning to go and live in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew it was a terrible place of sexual perversion, a terrible community that had been completely, completely overtaken by uh, gayism homosexuality, lesbianism, all those things. He said, I'm not going to live there. I don't want to even get too close to it. But by and by, he pitched his tent every day a little closer, a little closer, and still a little closer to Sodom and Gomorrah, until he actually moved in to Sodom, and actually he was voted on to the local council. And he sat in the gates, and he took his place with others in the local government of the city or cities. He wasn't thinking about the schools that his children would attend, so much as he was concerned about the markets where he could sell his cattle and get good prices for them. And we're told that God... Um, and the person of the Lord Jesus came by Abraham's tent one day with two angels. And Abraham entertained angels that day unawares, and the Son of God. And when they were leaving, um, again unknown in part to Abraham, uh, uh, Jesus said uh, to the angels, uh, just go on up ahead. Uh, they, they just look like men, and um, he said, I'll overtake you by and by. He says, let me talk to this man, Abraham. How can I hide from Abraham the thing that God is going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And so he was told the cities of the plains were going to be destroyed in a terrible judgment by fire. 
The wrath of God was this close, this close, this close. And so they informed, he informed Abraham what was going to happen. And remember, Abraham, the man of prayer, began to plead with God to spare the city. If there are 50 righteous, if there are 40, if there are 30, and he came down to 10, if only, if only he had continued praying, perhaps, perhaps the cities could have been spared. But he said, if there be 10 righteous, and you know what? In those cities, and there could have been maybe 10,000, maybe, maybe 50,000, maybe 100,000, there were not even 10 righteous persons. And so Abraham left off praying. And the next morning when Abraham arose, he looked out across the valley and he could see Sodom burning. And it was like a furnace. The angels came that night and um, they sought out Lot. Abraham had prayed for the safety of Lot. And so Lot had to be got out. You know, God answers prayer. When you're praying for lost, uh, a lost family member, if you pray and do your part, you know God will get them out. God will get them out. You keep pleading. You keep holding on. If God has given you promises, you claim those promises. Hold on with both hands. Pray. God will get them out. And uh, so the angels told Lot, judgment is at the door. There is going to be a terrible holocaust here in the morning as the sun arises. Get your family together. Get them out because it's going to happen. And uh, Lot thought about his neighbors, and he tried to speak to his neighbors, but nobody would listen. <laughs> they said, you crazy man. You've taken leave off your senses. <laughs> You're talking about a great fire, or some kind of holocaust, or some great overthrow, or judgment coming. <laughs> you, you, people like you should be locked up and the key thrown away. Not going to happen. He looked, as they looked at him, he was like one that mocked. And with his family, even his family could not be convinced. He got his wife and two daughters. And the angels actually had to get a hold on them and pull them, pull them, actually physically pull them out. And just when they were getting out of the city, and they were not very far distant, the wrath of God began to fall. And the, the flames and fire... Uh, of God's judgment. In fact, it, it looked a little bit like a nuclear fallout. The earth opened up, actually, and swallowed up those cities. And uh, the, 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 the bitumen that was deep in the earth, it, it consumed the cities until nothing, nothing, nothing remained. The foundations of that city now reside and rest underneath the waters of the Dead Sea. Imagine. The entire city. And I want to say to you, that if you want a, a clear and a very straightforward representation of how terrible the wrath of God is, there you have it. Genesis chapter 19. Will you read it sometime during the course of this week? You need to because of this. Most all of the Western world has become a Sodom and a Gomorrah. Most most of the Western world is just living just the way that Sodom and Gomorrah lived. Now, I'm taking my liberty in the house of God and as a Christian minister on this platform in sharing what I have from the Word of God. And it's for this reason that the Scottish Parliament are trying to ban the Bible 
in the land, what has been called the land of the book, Scotland. They're trying to ban the Bible because of passages like Genesis 19. But I want to say to you, the judgment of God is real. And I want to tell you that there is no publican, there is no brothel, no house of shame or ill fame, no gambling den, there is no place of molestation of children, there's no place that has anything to do with uh, uh, trading in, 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 in humankind. I want you to know that there's coming a day, and it's not very far distant, when the judgment of God will find them out, I tell you. Every murderer, many murderers have escaped the, the justice system. But there's coming a day when the wrath of God will overtake them. One of these days the world will be on fire. Flee from the wrath to come and find a, a safe haven of refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very briefly, just a comment about um, the fire of the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you, dear people here this evening, that the great need of the church of Jesus Christ, the single great need of the church, is to make room for the Holy Ghost in their prayer meetings, in their youth meetings, in the Sunday morning, Sunday evening meetings, ladies' meetings, outreach, every meeting and ministry of the church, and every one of us as Christian families, Christian individuals, we need to make more room for the Holy Ghost so that we can get the job done. I'm talking about fulfilling the Great Commission. It was Billy Graham, I think, who said that if God withdrew the Holy Spirit from the church in the West, 90% of what passes for church work and ministry would carry on just like nothing ever happened. The work would go on just like nothing was missing because they are not depending on the Holy Spirit. They are not making room for the Holy Ghost in their meetings. I heard the novel story being told on one occasion about the merchant man who um, was bringing his goods to the market and um, he was using a mule who was drawing a cart with all his goods uh, behind. And uh, the journey was long, and by the time they got to town, the old mule was tired, and it decided, I'm not going to go any further. Just on the edge of town as they were entering in, and the market was in sight, the mule actually uh, uh, lay down on the ground, and it, it refused to get up. And the man was very embarrassed. So he, he actually he struck the mule and said, uh, you lazy brute, get up, get up, get me to the market, just over there. The, the, the mule didn't understand his language. And then he took a stick and he began to beat the mule, but the mule was not for moving, not for any reason. And he shouted and he kicked and he struck the mule and it's, it was very, very firm in its determination not to move. And it was on the edge of town and nearby there was a chemist's shop and the chemist was looking out the window and he saw what he thought was an amusing story. 
the mule would not budge. And he decided he'd help the man. So he went over to a shelf and he got a little bottle. And uh, he poured a little drop of this substance from the bottle uh, into uh, another container. And he went out and he said, my friend, you want to get the mule moving? Uh, I've got the answer for you right here. He says, just stand back, please, a moment. And the guy stood back and he poured some of this liquid on the, on the mule's back. And as soon as that substance touched its back, the mule leapt up onto its four legs and it took off at the speed of greased lightning. And it ran the whole way to the end of... Um, the town. In fact, it was difficult to control it. And the man said, what on earth did you do? What was in that uh, little uh, vial that you used, that you poured on the mule? He said, read it for yourself, he said. It's liquid fire. Liquid fire. And it got the mule moving. And it got um, things happening. I say to you tonight, we need the liquid fire. The church needs the liquid fire of the Holy Ghost to get things moving in a positive direction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We need the power of God. And I want to tell you what happened in the upper room after Jesus went back to heaven. During a 10-day prayer meeting, I assume it was a meeting of prayer and fasting. What happened in that upper room was like the liquid fire that was poured on the back of the, the mule that day because it got things moving. And as the disciples, as the apostles began to preach the Word of God, and as they began to give testimony, and as they began to speak of Jesus and His power to save and the resurrection, there were people repenting all over that great city of Jerusalem. And in a short space of time, 3,000 souls were saved. Oh, my dear men and women, we need the Holy Ghost. Brothers and sisters, without the Holy Ghost, our prayer meetings will be dead and lifeless. Without the Holy Ghost, our preaching will be powerless and lifeless and ineffective. And people will go out unmoved. Without the Holy Ghost, we will never have revival. And many I know in this church are praying for a breath of God and a mighty uh, 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 effusion of the Holy Spirit among God's people. I say that is the key. That is the one single hope for Northern Ireland at the present time. We are facing great challenges, great challenges insofar as government legislation that's being forced upon us at the present time and insofar as so many other great needs that are at our very door, but if we can break through, and if we can make room for the Holy Ghost, and if we can surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit, if we can experience a deeper cleansing and a baptism of fire upon our lives and our witness for Jesus Christ, you know what? What I talked about in relation to W.P. Nicholson and the revival in the 1920s. What Duncan Campbell experienced in the Outer Hebrides at the end of the 1940s. 
and the Great Awakening of 1859, when a hundred thousand souls were brought into the kingdom of God. They say the largest number of people in the shortest space of time were brought into the kingdom of God. We can see it happen again. Yes, again. But we've got to do our part. Are you willing tonight to surrender your life to God that He might fill you with His Spirit and set you on fire to be a dynamic witness and to help bring in the kingdom of God in our generation? I believe God will come to you tonight in a dramatic way if you give Him an opportunity. Is there one here tonight that needs, and you realize deeply in your heart that you're not saved, you're not right with God, you would like to get saved, you would like to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Can I urge you tonight to settle the matter with God and give your life to Jesus Christ? Don't leave this house. Don't leave this house. I'm not here to entertain you, to tickle your ears with fanciful teachings and doctrines all made from the Bible. You've heard the Word of God tonight. may not be as well presented as I would like, but you've, you've got the gist of what I'm talking about, that there's a real place called hell, and you need to avoid going there. There's a real uh, uh, possibility even in our lifetime, of seeing the judgment of God being poured out upon mankind. It's a fact. And we need to be ready, and we need indeed to be prepared for um, all of that.